Adia Benton is Associate Professor of Anthropology and African Studies at Northwestern University. She is also the author of the 2017 Rachel Carson award-winning book titled HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone. She is currently working on a book about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and may even have a future project about the business of football in her future, which we are obviously very, very excited about. Her work spans questions of global health, political economy, race, and gender, amongst many other interests. Adia, it is a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about how 2020 is treating you in Chicago? <laughs> it's uh, It's been a, a wild ride, actually. Um, yeah, I didn't think I'd be stuck here <laughs> this year. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, the, the thing that's interesting about Chicago is that... Um, especially where I live, I live on the South side. So where there's a a fairly new trauma center. And so um, what I've been kind of dealing with is basically the, the, the twin traumas of the city, like basically uh, the protests that, that lasted for for quite some time around black lives, um, the traumas uh, by, you know, gunshot wounds and violent injuries and then COVID-19 on top of it. Um, So that's been sort of the thing, me yelling at the mayor a lot, like the old man yelling at clouds and and wondering why we don't receive text messages when they're shutting down the bridges and and closing off the rich people from the poor people. Um, But we do get, (laughs) it's like, yeah, anyway. We don't get a lot of COVID uh, messaging as far as I can tell, but that could be because I've been inside for seven months or eight months or whatever. Oh, wow. Well, also, I think that you, you're you the sort of person who would know uh, if there was good COVID messaging coming through. So it doesn't sound like a great sign. No. Um, <laughs> okay, well, we, we gotta get, there's, really, there's so much to get into. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation. So here's what I want to start with. Um, in a previous interview you gave earlier this year on The Dig, and I actually, I can't recommend that enough um, for, for listeners because it provides some incredibly useful context for the discussion we are about to have. You said that one of the things you look for in the stories people tell in West Africa about harm is, quote, who cannot be named, who cannot be revealed. There's a lot going on in the silences, in the interstices, and that's where you do your analysis, end quote. Now, uh, what I took from that, what, the point I, I thought you were getting at is, that in part, if you read the stories that people tell carefully, it can provide a window into structural dynamics, even if they are not named directly. Uh, and, and I love this analysis uh, and would tangentially note that this is sort of the great virtue for me of qualitative research, the way in which it can tease out the interplay between structure and the experiences through which it is lived, and in doing so, instruct us about both. But anyhow, all of this has me craving to engage in what I don't know, I, I want to call, uh, I'm not an anthropologist, but still I want to call an anthropology of the U.S. response to COVID-19. We're living in a moment in which many people in this country, fueled, of course, by political leadership, essentially, um, essentially refusing to acknowledge that we are even living through a pandemic at all. Um, we're also living in a moment of accompanying conspiracy theory, hello, QAnon, uh, which you have also suggested we might take seriously. I, conspiracy theory, I mean, not, not, not QAnon specifically, <laughs> conspiracy theory, um, for what it is that is being theorized, right, through the conspiracy theory and why. 
Um, so my first question, and I know this is sort of just a lot, but it's kind of contextualizing what I'm imagining we might dig into here. My first question is, what does this response, does the response of those who refuse to acknowledge the virus as real, as dangerous, tell us about U.S. society, of life lived under capitalism and white supremacy in this country? What are the lessons we can learn from reading between the lines of U.S. COVID denialism in its various manifestations? That's, yeah, that's, that's a question that I've been thinking a lot about, about a lot this week. Um, as, I think it's because I've, I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that sometimes it doesn't matter if a person believes in something, you know, whether they'll actually do what, <laughs> what, what they, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, I won't say Candyman yeah. three times in the mirror. Um, I don't believe the Candyman exists, but I don't want to take any chances. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and that that actually comes out of a lot of um, what I would consider to be fairly old anthropological work in medical anthropology, which is that people kind of do what is efficacious, what they perceive to be efficacious, um, or what they feel might not hurt. In this case. I think there's a, a kind of spectrum of denialism, right? So there's there are people who are not like maybe they're they're they know it's real, but they think that the descript the way that it's being presented to us is not real, right? So there's still people who are like, well, it's like the flu. Um, if if only one percent of the people who get it die dies, mm-hmm. then we, we're not really confronting anything serious because death becomes the sort of metric and not the, the disability, not the, the, um, the sort of longer term or chronic um, potential for this, this disease. Um, it could be that, and I actually heard this in a report fairly recently. I think it was on, it, it probably was on NPR. Um, and I think they went to North Dakota and Idaho, you know, places that I, think are, you know, <laughs> absolutely the places that you should take as the, the um, measure of everyone in the United States. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but certainly they were talking to people who were like, yes, we know it's real, but we wish that they wouldn't try so hard to scare us. So the, the, the idea wasn't that, the rea- that they weren't denying the reality of the virus as much as they were, were, they were wary of the techniques or the tactics or the strategies being used by certain actors so those in this case it was public health folks it was um clinic they were clinicians who were working in these over burdened under resourced um places and so when i talk about these the silences i i ask i wonder about why fear is something that they reject i want to know what um what it would look like for um, if this were a, a more deadly uh, disease, or if it, you know, like what would happen if it was a more predictable disease? Like, and and it and do they? Do, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do people perceive care, uh, irrespective of an outbreak, right? Outside of the the the, the context of the pandemic, how mm-hmm. do they feel about um, the the organizations, the the government agencies that are supposed to be um i guess enlisted to care how do they generally uh exist in relation to those um 
those organizations or those institutions, those things actually matter. And I think about that, you know, when I think about um, the is was Ebola real in West Africa, like there were people who were saying it wasn't real, but it was because the experience was usually when there's a crisis, a crisis is, is, is also about resources. And to name a crisis is to then begin a process of soliciting resources and distributing resources. And whosoever makes decisions about the distribution of resources in a crisis is, is, is usually in a position to make a lot of other kinds of decisions. Those things matter, right? That's a that's a reflection of power, power dynamics in, in a society. And so, I mean, I think I've meandered around the topic, the issue, but I think that's that's sort of what I'm always trying to look for, which is what are these stories about? And often you have to be in the place for a while to start to to think about what is being said and think about what the flip side of that, what the other side of the mask is, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and this really brings me to the next question because you're talking about this question of resources and boy, what was going off in my, my head as you were talking is like, if we're thinking about who gets the, like, where are the resources, what are the resources and who distributes the resources and we're sort of sitting here thinking like in the United States, what resources? Um, it's a little right. bit the feeling right. I'm having. I mean, and, well, I also feel like that's, that's why the Idaho, North Dakota question comes up. I'm like, these are rural places. These are places that, that mm-hmm. probably, you know, we know that hospitals have been closed. We know that these regional companies, basically corporations run hospitals. We know that the, the public health departments are not particularly well resourced or they have to manage multiple um, kind of municipalities, uh, for different forms of sovereignty, right? There are a lot of reservations in some of these states. Um, so mm-hmm. all of these things start to matter. Um, yeah, I, I, I could probably go on. I think one of the things that we kind of are forced to think about, and a lot of us are not really, <laughs> which is the distinction between healthcare and public health, um, ah. and how and how those actually are governed. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know if you had more of a question. Okay, but I, yeah, I, yeah, I do. I do want to dig into that more. Yeah, yeah, no, this is good, good because like I was thinking about this in advance of the interview and you, you've been getting into it, right? Like you, you've spoken about when talking about the public health crisis in West Africa, the, this issue of contextual specificity, which you were talking about here again, and the fact that the specific histories people have with institutions like the healthcare system. And again, that, that's actually an interesting distinction between the healthcare and public health, which maybe I'm not teasing on enough. But I, what I was going to say is, right, the, the experiences people have with institutions like the healthcare system may shape if and how they want to access care once we get to the crisis. So like the experiences they have before the crisis impact what they're going to do during the crisis. And so inted- attentive to this, n- attentiveness to this then can in turn shape the nature of public health intervention. Now, of course, some folks, at least in the United States, tend to view themselves as, I would say, universal human subjects unencumbered by the baggage of history and culture. Uh, <laughs> but if we were to resist that frame, I'm curious how the particular conditions in this country have shaped the kind of response to this crisis in terms of these issues of like people's dispositions to public health and health care. You know, obviously, people in massive numbers have, re- have resisted public health outreach. That has become, at least from my very lay perspective, 
along with perpetual capitalist imperatives to privilege the market over human life, the challenge for contending with the pandemic here. Uh, and if I were to dabble in a moment of autoethnography as a Canadian currently residing in the United States, I would certainly speak to the ways in which the profoundly for-profit nature of this U.S. healthcare system, uh, this private system, has influenced my own attitudes towards accessing medical care, which is to say that as a function of my dis mistrust of the system, I don't do it. Um, although when I lived in Canada, I did so quite readily, right? Like I would see physicians regularly and make regular appointments. I don't do that here. I just don't. That's a fact. The only reason why we ever see healthcare practitioners is for my child. Um, right. And it's grudgingly for, at that, right? <laughs> so it seems to me like, is this part of the problem more broadly? People in the U.S. rightly mistrust a system that seems oriented more towards producing poverty and debt than health or care and thus aren't willing to heed its warning. Does that diagnosis make sense to you or do you read this sort of differently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, okay. So, yeah, I, I was trying to think about what I, what I do for healthcare. I've had, a, I've had quite a few little sort of health scares recently. So, and they're not even scares. They're, they were reality. They were, they were real. They were <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah. And, right. Oh, it, it, it's been fun. Uh, <laughs> It's yeah, yeah. I just the specialists are part. I kind of a trip, but um, the uh, well, I, I and I keep getting bills, and it's funny. So my spouse is a is a trauma surgeon actually, and he's always like, "Did you get another bill for something? What is wrong with this this health system?" <laughs> Which you know, and I actually make a decision. I don't go to the University of Chicago, go to Northwestern Medicine because one is actually cheaper and the quality of care is better. Um, and so, um, yeah, so what I was going to say about the, I, I, you know, yes, we are absolutely struggling with, um, a system that will in debt and impoverish people and does so regularly. And it does shape the kind of care that people get. Um, the premiums we pay are too damn high. Um, and we don't even get, um, access to the best quality care often. So. The distinction I was making, though, between public health and the health health care, I guess, you know, it's actually a it's a fundamental split in terms of training, in terms of prestige, in terms of where they operate, right? And so, you know, when I compare the Sierra Leonean case to say the U.S. case, I always say things like, well, you know, in most of the African countries and in, in Asian countries I've worked in, this kind of outbreak is actually surprisingly easy to manage because, well, I would say in a place like Sierra Leone, where actually a majority of people are poor, the healthcare system is also the public health system, which is mm -hmm. to say much of much care is delivered through public health, through, through public hospitals, but also the Ministry of Health has a fairly robust and centralized way of operating, which is that you know, they will have people who do health education and communications, and they also manage what the sort of package of primary care might be in the public hospitals. And those are the primary. So all of the stuff sort of filters through the same system. Um, that's not the same in the United States. So, you know, when I teach class, my classes on epidemics, um, I actually start, I ask students this. So if there's an outbreak of uh, meningitis or measles on campus, what happens? What would that process look like? Who, who would know? Mm. <laughs> How does that happen? Okay, so one, one student gets uh, measles, 
or what I actually measles is a bad example because they, they sort of force you to get measles vaccine before you uh, move to campus. But let's say you get meningitis or, or something else and it's a reportable disease at the national level. So basically let's say your university health system uh, might register it and report it to the city who might report it to the state who then has to report it to say the CDC. And <laughs> that could trigger, depending on how many cases there are, that could trigger an investigation at the national level, but generally it would be something handled either by the county or the city. Um, and then a workup might be done and then other things might happen. Like there might be uh, informing the other students. It might be, it might trigger some kind of health education campaign. It might do a lot of other things. Now that's public health. Now, your actual treatment is health, is handled through whatever healthcare system you're embedded in. So maybe your university health services can handle your case, but actually it's probably going to be your, your primary care physician and some other thing. And so the way we, we have our stuff organized is through all of these different sort of fragmented systems, many of which are underfunded. So your health, your county health department or your city health department or your state health department should actually be able to do, you know, it should be surveilling infectious diseases. It should be developing health communications. It should be doing outreach. It should be doing contact tracing, whatever. That's what it does. Wherever your doctor is, that's something else. And <laughs> so, and, you know, we also have these, this sort of national structure. So we have a CDC. We have NIH, we have all of these other sort of healthy situations going on up at the national level, but the extent to which they interact with state, uh, territory, reservation, health system, or public health might be very different. Um, where I live in Cook County, Cook County has a health department, but the city of Chicago also has a health department. And Cook County also runs hospitals. And guess what? Nobody's doing contact tracing in the same system. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's doing testing yeah. in the same system for COVID-19. Yeah. And when I talk to someone who works for the University of Chicago, they're like, oh my God, I never really thought about the county. <laughs> I've been working in the city. <laughs> and I'm like, but you're in the county. And they're like, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so multiply that by 50,000 or whatever. Wow. Um, and, and think about how that works in a place. So let's say you're in rural Oregon or rural Idaho. Those also happen to be places with pretty sparse public health system, right? And imagine suddenly someone says, okay, here's $100,000 to do COVID outreach and education in a place where there had been a basically a vacuum of care in that in that area of you know that sort of that special niche thing called public health imagine a group of people who have already sort of divested from government intervention having to receive messages about COVID-19 being asked to um, participate in um, a sort of organized disease intervention <laughs> I think it, I think that's the thing is like you have to think about all of these all of these um, regional and local distinctions and experiences with institutions and organizations um, 
you know, it's very likely and very possible that that these folks will will happily wear masks um, if they've been talking about it with their people, <laughs> right? But it, it's not clear that 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 intervention can happen sort of as a top down um, intervention. And that's the kind of, um, I think, so to get back to your point about the relationship or, or the history that people have with certain kinds of institutions, um, the fragmented nature of those institutions, the fact that they've generally been underfunded for decades, and the fact that that really got ramped up during the sort of at the end of Carter towards Reagan's administration. Um, all of these things actually shape the possibility of doing public health stuff, doing the bread and butter public health stuff that you would expect could be done. Um, you know, if you look at the city, so San Francisco, New York, LA, Chicago, um, they have they have health departments that are better funded than some state health departments. They have um, they have people who they have research arms. They have labs. They do things that other health departments cannot do, and that's largely because they have funding streams and revenue that sort of exceed what might be allotted by city, state um, governments. Right. The, it's the, the it's it's getting into the weeds, but you know one of the examples mm -hmm. I I can now point to is that that one of the AIDS guys at the New York City Health Department moved into a CD a pretty high level CDC position fairly recently. That's because those are you know that's sort of a stepping stone. In fact, I think one of the previous CDC directors was a North uh, New York City Health Department head, um, and so you know these are the kinds of resources allocated to these major city departments don't look like what we would see um, in the counties in the or the smaller towns to which which where most of us live. And so I sort of have like a, a, a small follow up um, as the historian. I'm always sort of like, I don't I don't know the history of public health the way that I, I should and the way I really want to right now. Um, so when you mentioned sort of how there's a bit of sort of a a transition or sort of like a shift in policies from like around the end of the Carter era to the Reagan era. Could you sort of explain sort of what happened there and sort of how that shift worked out? Um, so I'm like, how, what's the, the, the shorthand is always neoliberalism, right? Um, but the, <laughs> the short, the shorthand is that. Um, so one of the things that, gosh, I'm starting to, I'm actually pretty fuzzy on the, the history of, um, the community health centers, but when I first learned about them, the community health centers were supposed to be this way to um, decentralize primary care and, and public health. So these were supposed to be neighborhood, and in fact, they still exist, but I think they have another name now, something like FQHC, but they're supposed to be these, um, these neighborhood centers that offer primary care, prevention stuff. But I mean, and, and they're supposed to be attentive to local or community needs. This was part of a broader movement and I would say a global movement in the late 70s or early, late 60s to, to 
late 70s to, to try to extend primary health care to all, to all people. And it move, comes from these earlier socialist movements within health. So you'd see that in South Africa in the 50s, China in the, in the, um, in the, in the 50s as well, and, and obviously the Soviet Union. You're probably hearing a pattern, right? So this is there's a reason that that someone like Reagan or Thatcher might have been opposed to them is because they absolutely they sound socialist as they are, and um, so that's what that decline looked like. It, it's I mean part of it is also trying to I mean one of the things that I also kind of talk to students about now is. Um, or this is the example of, of how a lot of the personnel and services that public health uh, uh, departments might provide, they used to be provided, that they're now provided by contractors. Um, so that's the other neoliberal part. And so um, I was explaining to someone that during COVID, there was a I was a part of a discussion about contact tracing and testing, and it was somebody from the university, somebody from a non-governmental organization, and someone, I think, who worked for the city or the state. And they were talking about how the Illinois Department of Health had farmed out all of its database work, it had farmed out all of its surveillance work to a special company, and that company mm-hmm. used a database that was not compatible with all of the other databases for tracing COVID contacts and their tests. Wow. And so because they had these different database modalities, they aren't able to sync them. They would have to do special work to sync them up. Um, And a lot of that was an artifact of this, basically contracting out all of these things that should be in-house. And so I guess if I were to describe all of this, the stuff that happened in this past, I guess, 30 or 40 years is um, reducing costs in-house also meant contracting out a lot of labor that would normally be in-house. It meant um, fighting the socialization of health and medicine and and localizing it um, by focusing on profit and and so that's sort of like the, the 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 all of the stuff together that that helped to to I think disempower and defund public health. We see um, a proactive and and really militaristic response um, as you have characterized it, sort of a secure securitized one um, from the U.S. in reaction to Ebola in West Africa in 2014. However, in the U.S. in this moment. Uh, we have seen what appears what appears to be precisely the opposite, which is an incredibly passive, apathetic response from the state. And instead, we see uh, sort of these white militias uh, literally protesting against the interventions of state actors and against the government's sort of apathetic um, attempt to mitigate the virus's spread. Now, clearly, the regime with authority in the U.S. in 2014 is not the same as that that was in power in 20, uh, sorry, in 2020. I think I said the date wrong, 2014 and then 2020. Um, and so the question is this, is the fundamental difference between the militarized US response to Ebola versus its lethargic response to COVID now, is this difference simply a consequence of a different administration in power? 
Or does it speak to larger questions about people's beliefs about the sorts of bodies that they think can and should have war raged upon them, including and especially when they are bearers of disease, and the sorts of bodies that must always be treated as essentially, according to a sort of eugenicist logic, even necessarily healthy? And I, I realize that there are really complicated racialized dynamics there, but the, the question's already complicated, so I'll sort of end it there for you. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot. I obviously I've been thinking about this because I'm trying to finish this Ebola book <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, oh. I know it's, it's fun. So the, I, yeah. So, okay. So there are a few ways I'm thinking about this. The, the first is that, and, and I, I appoint people to Obama's speeches. So Obama didn't have a lot of speeches, uh, during Ebola, he had, or maybe, how should I, that's, that's like a fir the first thing that I, I want to say, he, he actually let the people at the CDC talk. So mm -hmm. even though, you know, Trump had this, his daily press conferences for months, um, where he just sort of, everything was this sort of chaos on stage. Um, but when Obama did talk, he, he had a special message and the message was always, we need to stop this thing at its source. And he, and, and what I found really fascinating about that was he was trying to kind of, he, he did a couple of things alongside that. He would also say, you know, yes, this is a humanitarian thing. Yes, we're trying to help, but I also want to make it clear that we're not just trying to help. We're trying to keep it over there. <laughs> and whatever that looks like, right? What that looks like is we, we send people over there to, to really keep it over there. Um, and, and that looks, that was military, that was public health folks, so epidemiologists and communication specialists, whoever could be quote unquote boots on the ground um, from the public health response. And that's, that's actually what it, what it looked like. Um, within the country, people talked about um, things like invisible enemy or, you know, war checkpoints were, remobilized as public health checkpoints, things like that. So there's a, there are a bunch of ways that militarization or security frameworks get reactivated um, under this public health emergency, uh, security emergency threat, what, however they chose to frame it. And they chose to frame it in, in, the, in at least two ways. Um, so there's that, but I would like to also kind of point out that Trump had a different form of militarization. So I would say there are some ways that it was, um, it, it wasn't as pointed because I think that's also part of his own strategy, which was to always re rethink the, um, well, <laughs> rethink the, the use of US military. And so he did actually make a few different points. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this point at which New York was looking like the hot spot with New Jersey, Connecticut. And so that those, all these states were starting to think regionally in terms of how people flow between. And so what, what Trump kept doing is he said, well, I would like to, maybe we should put a big old quarantine around New York. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And then he said, oh, how about around Connecticut and New York? <laughs> he sort of kept enlarging the the boundaries or or extending the boundaries of of what needed to be 
treated as the enemy. You know, that sort of Foucauldian, you know, sort of straight up state racism. You just sort of create, you sort of draw the boundaries of your enemy. Uh, you, how, how can you justify being at war with yourself? And <laughs> you start to kind of carve out new enemy ground. And so he would do that. He would say, oh, South Dakota is amazing. It's like spread out frontier, good old Americans. And then you have these New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, or, or however he chose to, to frame it, right? Um, and then he had, remember, he also tried to fire, well, he did fire. It's so hard to remember. He fires people all the time. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he tried to fire people who were uh, def defense department folks who said, no, you actually can't use the military for this, or you can't protect yourself using these forces. So, and then there's the National Guard, right? So I think the, the issue that we had though, is we had two sort of threats happening at the same time. We being not really us, but <laughs> the, this, this, this administration, there were two enemies. Um, one enemy was this group of people who insisted that Black life mattered. Um, we had, and then we had this other group of people who were um, actively defying national mandates or federal mandates to enable a pretty robust response to the epidemic. So I don't want to give Cuomo too much credit, but there, you know, there was definitely a, or even de Blasio too much credit, but there, there were efforts being made to kind of consolidate or create a, a, a decent response to address the actual problem of people dying and falling ill. Um, and so Trump made those people enemies and did have what did, had, had something that could be looked, I guess, <laughs> he he implemented measures or and that could look like securitization or could be interpreted as militarized um it was not even it was not um mm -hmm. equitable i guess is the way to put it it was not consistent mm -hmm. um and i don't think it was always easily enforceable because of these people's unwillingness to to really comply but there was certainly that. And so when you get to this question of the militias, the people who were um, fight, you know, planning to kidnap governors or whatever, um, they're mobilized by this Trumpist, um, I don't even know what it is. Like it, this, Trump, this Trumpist, uh, it, it, what, I mean, what is it? It's like an impetus? It's, it, what do you call it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so interesting because like so we were characterizing this almost as like the state was being apathetic and there was like this militarized response against the state, but that's not necessarily it. There's another way of looking at it that the state was operating through the militia, so it just looked different. But mm -hmm. like the securitization actually mm -hmm. came from these extra legal forces, but that doesn't mean they weren't connected, right? Because right. like Trump was stand by and stand backing them. Yeah, there's like the same deputization that people like, you know, and we were also seeing random white, usually women calling the police on people, or you see these guys who are shooting or they're deputized, I think, um, to do the work of um, managing dissent 
or mm. or address and when i say dissent again dissent against dissent like if they're dissenting against uh, trump right so um or what values he claims to espouse there it's 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 very it, like it's so chaotic that i have trouble kind of like trying to place yeah. Yeah. order on it but there is a pattern and you know, I, I I see it, and it's almost it's it's almost it's sick how the pattern plays it's how the pattern reveals itself, um, but it's not something that pinning it down really it doesn't help to pin it down, right? It, it's mm -hmm. like we don't really resolve anything by doing so. It, it's like we we have to kind of charge ahead on our own path. <laughs> we we can't just sort of fight back. Trumpism <laughs> it's you have to do something you have to just completely get out of the game yeah and speaking of this like sort of deputization this kind of takes me to to a, a question that I, I've really been thinking on throughout this sort of pandemic uh, for full context I'm in Canada so it's a little bit different um, in how we've been dealing with it but very similar in terms of like in the early period of the virus and you're referring to to Cuomo and the sort of back and forth between Trump and Cuomo at the early stages, there was this like highly surveillant, even um, panoptical cultural trend that effectively led to this sort of neoliberal policing of pandemic protocols. In Canada, for instance, we saw this like massive increase in punitive measures um, for individuals violating public health orders. Yet then we saw a summer of of social rebellion and social uprising against the actual police and their systemic use of extreme violence against um, particularly black folks in the United States. What I find sort of interesting about this, this whole thing is that at least some of these, these folks um, were the, the sort of people that were um, engaged in this biopolitical surveillance policing um, in the earlier periods, but then also became um, those in solidarity, at least nominally in solidarity with the the Black Lives uprisings. They were there. The constituencies were at least in some ways overlapping. Do you think? And my question is: Do you think that the resistance to police in any way sort of qualitatively changed the biopolitical dimensions of the U.S. response to COVID? I should preface preface this by saying one of my arguments in this book is that public health is policing. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah. and one of the things that I had thought about talking about when I was sort of thinking through some of these questions was the fact that there's this sort of overt militarization, um, but then there is this more dispersed, more, yeah, like panoptical, I guess, um, more dispersed mm -hmm. form of surveillance that's a part, mm -hmm. both a part, part and parcel of what public health is, but also part and parcel yeah. of all of what policing wants to be, right? It wants to do predictive yeah. work. It wants to be data analytics. And, um, and, and that's, that's definitely a part of it. And then you have this other, yes, this other deputization of folks who are like, oh, he wasn't wearing his mask. You know, I think yes, I talked about yes, this, exactly. like everybody, everybody's yeah, sort of yeah. policing everyone else. I get, I get annoyed, even though I'm like, yes, we all should be wearing our masks. Um, I do get annoyed when I hear people sort of, you know, being like, oh, am I judging? You know, they're saying it's sort of sarcastically, yeah. but actually, 
sure. they want to be validated for mm-hmm. basically yes doing doing the work of of security guard or bouncer or whatever it is that 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 you know the or mall cop or whatever like whatever that level of yeah. of, of vigilance that sort of day-to-day patrolling and vigilance is is, is right um, what the consequences are, I'm not sure. It's, it's are they social consequences? Um, it, I think there are fines actually in some places for not wearing your mask, um, and I think there are um, a bunch of. I think there are. I think I've read that. Um, and in fact, I just want to sort of bring it back to Sierra Leone for a second. Um, mm-hmm. They had a a law. I think it was from the '60s. Um, there's like a public health uh, law that there were a certain number of diseases that were notifiable and could um, allow for state of emergency and fining and all of this. And they added Ebola to that list so that they could find people who are harboring Ebola victims. Lord. Harboring. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I was like, who, who turns anyone in for that? Like, <laughs> it was like $300 or something, which is like a year's salary. Um, and you know, and, and I'd heard stories about people turning folks in just because they wanted to get rid of them. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I know I'm laughing, but it's like, no, it's, it's nervous laughter. Uh, yeah. And I, I think about that. And, I, and again, this is why I sort of these folks who are, are fearful and angry about uh, mask mandates, I kind of see what they're talking about. I don't agree. Right, because I do think that this is about collective responsibility, but I do understand that some of this is about the encroaching, um, <laughs> the encroaching police state of that. You know, like that. That there is that. There's that sense of being watched, mm-hmm. of being judged, of being assessed, and actually of being criminalized. Um, yeah. But it isn't. You know, I, I also want to say it's not jail and it's not prison. Um, I think it would be, it would feel less that way if we again had appropriate education and appropriate social social safety nets to address the issue, right? Like if you really want people to stay home, you have to ask why they feel like they can't. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Under what circumstances? And often it's because they have to make money to stay in the house Mm -hmm. that they live in or to pay for food. Um, so these are obvious things. And you would ask a farmer in Guinea the same question. Well, why, why won't mm. you stay at home? They're like, well, because I, I have to tend to the crops. I have to harvest crops. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we have to do to keep get you? Well, can I go to the fields and I'll take my temperature when I, before I leave and I take it when I come back? And that actually was a, a real negotiation in a farm in Guinea or a series of farms in Guinea when their place was identified as a hotspot and they needed to be able to make sure people didn't get Ebola, but they also wanted to make sure that people didn't get Ebola. (laughs) It's like they actually did the stuff that they needed to do. Um, That was a a relationship of, if it was a, I guess the kind of watchfulness that is also caring. And I think, yeah, I think that's the distinction, right? It's like we maybe don't mind being watched over. We don't mind vigilance 
if that vigilance is is a part of a of a, a framework in which cares at the center yes yes no there's a lot popping for me with this like part of it what you're getting at to me is like the utter neoliberalization of this because it's like it all falls on the individual, right? Like the individual can choose to wear a mask or not, but then the individual also has to determine whether to make money or not to survive, right? It's like all choices, choices, choices that people are making. But if you had a more humane social organization, <laughs> people wouldn't be confronted with these absolutely exactly. impossible choices, right? Between their health and their survival materially, right? Because we could just like, for instance, we could be paying people to stay home, right? Like that's a pretty simple way it's of intervening simple. in this conversation. Yeah. But like in this country, it seems like that's totally oh, out of the question. You have to work for your money. There's no free lunch. <laughs> exactly. And actually there's something, there's actually something totally rational, especially for the Republican opposition to it. Because they're like, people will, <laughs> if you actually pay people a better salary, a better living, and they're currently making in our absolutely horrific political economy, right? During this pandemic, are they going to go back to their nightmare existence, like their, <laughs> their horrific wages, if they can like experience a better life during a pandemic? Like they, they have real questions to ask there. I mean, I think I would say <laughs> maybe, they're, maybe they're just tired of working and they don't want anyone else to, to feel great about it. Um, right. They're like... Right. They're like, I hate my job. If I got paid $100,000 to stay home, I would absolutely do nothing. <laughs> like, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sort of bizarre, but yeah, it's, um, I always feel like when people make that argument, though, it really is about how much they hate work. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And, no, and, they're, and they're ashamed. Like, they feel shame. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's, yeah, it's like it's projection. I, I, but yeah, maybe it's just a Protestant ethic. But it is, well, there's that. But the other thing I had to say is like when you were talking about um, this question, this like panoptical thing, the surveillance, the way people are judging each other. I, I think like we all experience some part of that, right? Like in terms of just how we are processing this around us, because you know, like publicly, I'm trying so hard to keep all of this in mind, right? And like this, this neoliberal framework, this piece about surveillance and policing, and like, that's not healthy to be policing other people. But like, when someone comes near me, like my child, if we're like out in the world, I I'm like, horrified by it. Stay and so back. enraged, so enraged, so enraged, I can't even tell you. Stay back disease vector who doesn't respect my space. Exactly. That's, that's going through my head. And then the other thing is like, we always walk by this National Guard. Like we were literally talking about this sort of militarization piece, this National Guard outlet. And like, I don't really understand how the whole thing works here, but I, I read it as military space. And like, I see, I see the, the soldiers, for lack of a better word, entering that facility, no masks on, hugging each other, patting each other on the back. And like, it's like my... <laughs> My brain is just exploding. I can't deal with it. Right? And it's like, I really want to surveil and judge the military apparatus right. for their like failures to, I don't know, like correctly police us. I don't know what's really going on there, but I just have to say, like, this is like, <laughs> I'm thinking about all this. Stuff. Nathan, it's not about policing the police. It's about making all of us little police to police each other. <laughs> And therefore, the system is always protected, and we are always controlled and create and, and produced into these docile bodies, so that the state can use for for whatever purpose it has. So that is actually makes 
complete sense to me, Nathan. Yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. I'm, I'm, I'm always already yeah policing yeah. The individual. <laughs> we are basically saying Foucault was right. <laughs> Yeah. I never want to go too well, far down that road, okay? Like, I'll make some confessions. Well, <laughs> spe- speaking of biopolitics for a moment, and Foucault for just a moment, I would be super, super interested to get your take as an expert on, let's just generally call it the anthropology of disease. Please correct me if that's not what you would um, sort of refer to yourself as or sort of your project, on how you foresee the geopolitics uh, and the biopolitics of vaccine rollout taking shape over the next 12 to 18 months. This has like been on my mind now since for, for months, but particularly since I, I, I'm seeing the global north begin hoarding these vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, and, and the like. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on how the vaccine rollout might fit as sort of a perfect case study for you both internationally vis-a-vis kind of rich capitalist countries getting privileged access to the vaccine, but also, I think more interestingly, domestically. In other words, whose bodies are worth privileging and whose bodies are worth sacrificing? Um, And I suspect this is going to be a really real question with real life and death consequences over the, the, the coming months for many, many people um, across the world, but also domestically so how do you sort of see this rollout playing out yeah (laughs) that was a goblin okay (laughs) (laughs) we're just we're just we're just jumping around we're just jumping but still biopolitics you see (laughs) yeah yeah so oh it's like brad simadar um (laughs) so huh i was I I put up today on Twitter, I actually put up this picture that I I put up for my first year seminar on epidemics. We were playing Pandemic, which we do in that class. It's a terrible game, but somebody has to play it. (laughs) And and often what I do is I say to people, I'm like, okay, so let's talk about the roles here. Let's talk about the relationships between the countries and how this does not, like, this is not what is, this this board game is just not ready for this. We need to talk about this. Um, and, and vaccines and medications, uh, vaccines and treatments are always a part of that story because in on that board game, if I even remember it correctly, there are just too many rules. I hate board games with rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, there are these lab laboratory people. There are all of these things. Oh, I wanted to get, there's one other thing I wanted to say about the military because I keep forgetting to talk about that. The other way the military has been involved is Operation Warp Speed. You know it. Um, it's such a weird mm-hmm. name, isn't it? Operation mm-hmm. Warp. It's yeah. Scott- it, it's such it's such a, an America name. I have to admit, Scotty Warp Speed. It's it's actually Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> it's like Star Trek or Spaceballs. Like which one? Uh, <laughs> so there's so that that's actually largely a military run operation which I'm sure you noticed. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. And and do you know why we we have why we often end up have military doing these kinds of things? <laughs> I don't know the specifics, but I can I can take a guess. The guess being that you don't fund public health, but you definitely fund the military. <laughs> yeah, like that's where the money is and that's where you have the organizational resources to actually kind of 
do it. That's the U.S. model. You don't fund anything but yeah. the military. Yeah. Forget right. about public yeah. health. There's <laughs> only one thing that gets funded here. It's where we get our logistics, right? I, I mean, logistics is, yeah. a fund- is fundamentally about uh, being able to facilitate the movement of capital, right? <laughs> it's to facilitate yeah. extraction and, 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 and exploitation. Um, and there's no, this is no different. Um, and the reason that we have some major or whatever, <laughs> we have some military guy, like some big, log- he's basically a chief log- logistician managing or trying to map out all the moving parts of the system is because they that's sort of what they do right they like move lots of stuff to different places so that they can take shit out right and and so and bring stuff in to facilitate all of that yeah so the um again it's going to be a mess and one of the reasons it's going to be a mess but not probably not as big a mess as testing and tracing stuff is because it's about moving a commodity right yeah and and into bodies <laughs> like that that is essentially yeah. what it yeah. is it's like it's it's try it's i was what was i wow i just had like a total brain brain fart where i was i was thinking about um hmm, i'll get back to it but i <laughs> i think it'll be I think it actually will be slightly easier, but I do worry about, as you suggested, hoarding, um, yeah. which is going to happen. But there are these other mechanisms for low-income countries, and those usually there's this thing called Gavi. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it, but only recently. See? I definitely have not heard of it. See, we're learning about, about we're learning about all these new things. It's so great. That's the thing about a pandemic. We have lots more time yeah. and <laughs> and we're having to learn about how the sausage is made. So there are these yeah. Gavi is like this I'm not even sure. It, it, well, no, it's definitely a, it's a non-profit sort of consortium thing and they are committed to um, making certain vaccines affordable globally and so what they do is they mm-hmm. actually purchase at low cost all these vaccines for distribution in poor places that's sort of the nutshell now i think they're still a little bit shady there are reasons for that um <laughs> i won't de- mm-hmm. i won't deep dive into it but basically they, the way what they did with ebola was um they bought something like a couple hundred thousand a few hundred thousand of these vaccines before they were really shown to be efficacious um Mm -hmm. and my feeling about that was that was sort of Merck's way of offloading stuff that they thought would never have a prof turn a profit because it only affected poor people now this is different right we're (laughs) this this is this is like an actual amazing thing for pharmaceutical companies. One of the reasons they probably, yeah. Pfizer probably didn't take money for development from Trump was because they um, knew that once they got it ready, they would be able to actually make more money off of it um, and not be indebted yeah. to this creepy yeah. politician, right? Um, yeah. That's my hunch. Like maybe I'm wrong, but so anyway. Um, you know, I'm not, it's, I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm still not really sure what to, what to think about it, except that, um, I sort of have some strange faith that the 
logistics folks at Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> I know it's sad, right? This is where we are. Um, and their coordination with states fairly early on, like actually developing state plans, mm -hmm. I think is a good thing. Now, where I worry is how states choose to distribute such a vaccine. Um, yeah. the channels through which they would do it. So, I mean, we're talking about, so I'm from South Carolina, which is a state that absolutely refused to exp expand Medicaid. They were like, no, we don't want your money. We don't want to give people better health care. No, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are states yeah. like that. And I can imagine that even under a Republican administration that the equitable distribution of vaccines through those channels, somehow they'll manage to mess it up. Yeah. And, but, but, I should say but, um, or no, maybe I should say and, I'm not, I also think about the fact that some of these states, which are supposed to be responsible for providing PPE for clinicians and staff at hospitals, um, these people who are, these groups that were supposed to allot, um, basically a lot resources for tracing isolation testing i i worry that they would have trouble with vaccine distribution but yeah. again i want to say vaccine distribution is a lot easier than testing following up yeah <laughs> yeah and, you know i actually it's it's different right putting something into somebody's yeah. body is very like public health departments actually have been doing this Mm -hmm. well like while i mostly agree with that i i'm i just keep thinking back to the rudy gobert thing and like <laughs> and, and just how testing has gone where basically rich the rich can get as many tests as they need and we saw that with rudy gobert right like like during a moment where there was test rationing and scarcity the nba had the capabilities of testing this person and getting a same day result back yep um and i i just and then I look at like Kim Kardashian is able to go and get all of her people tested and go to an island for like two weeks. Um, and I just see capitalism and I'm like, that's going to happen yes. with the with the vaccine. And, and how are we going to get this to the people who actually need it, who are dying at disproportional rates? Right. Um, and, and it's just like, which, which is I, it, yeah, go ahead. No, which is why I think it's going to be. I, I do believe that the first wave, which is occu mostly occupational, yeah, I think that's why. I actually think that that's why you'll see some more equitable distribution mm -hmm. at first. I think when you think yeah. when you look at different waves, yeah. right? It's very easy to just so they might not have been able to get people masks <laughs> and and suits <laughs> for daily use, yeah but they can give you two yeah. doses of a vaccine. Yeah. You know, cause they know where you are. Like if you work at the hospital, you, you already have to get your flu vaccine, right? Yeah. That, that's something that they can do. If you're a home health worker, they make your employer makes you get your flu vaccine. Now yeah. the, the pessimist in me is just like, oh, that's going to be happening. Certainly frontline workers and you get it, but in the behind the scenes, if you like, pull back the curtain so are like the ceo of amazon who doesn't have to see anyone for like oh, three months that's, if that's they like don't want happen. to he's he's also gonna have a prick in his arm but we're not gonna be talking oh about yeah. It. yeah 
Um, yeah. But this is just a critique of capitalism. Saying, yes, I agree, and I and that's assuming that the the billionaire or the tr- trillionaire, not the trillionaires, is going to say, "Oh, I really want it." But, yeah. I mean, so so I, I'm actually kind of somewhat convinced too that there's going to be a little group of um, of elites who are actually afraid to take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. who are just contrib- or who are already contributing to the anti-vax rhetoric right like i, I, I wouldn't you know these because these are people who can actually live in a bubble forever. yeah yeah like you think jeff bezos actually ever has to be around people ever yeah he can just get his girlfriends tested you know whatever like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It just exactly. it, it, it's it, so I, I mean I think that's the other piece of this, which is that they also have to so so I would say the other thing that has to also be addressed is is like the extent to which this vaccine is actually safe and effective. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Even though we have the approval and we have this sort of the, the su- su- sufficient data to be able to say certain things about this vaccine, mm-hmm. we still haven't had more than a year of COVID. <laughs> so yeah, we don't right, actually yeah. know. We don't, there's a I don't know if it's temporal. Yeah. We don't know a lot of things about this. And so what I suspect is that the rush sounds, the rush sounds likely, but not necessarily, um, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion because it, th- that's why I'm, I'm saying it's probably going to be a bunch of doctors and, you know, a lot of anti-vax nurses, and <laughs> there's, like yeah. there's going to be a, a, a like a a little sort of tier of folks. Um, I think it doesn't help that it's a double; it's two shots, and that you have to yeah. take them several weeks apart. Um, yeah. As a person who actually has to get shots fairly regularly, and yeah. I'm always missing that like extra rabies shot. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think about that a lot. I'm like, I don't get where I didn't get my type. I didn't schedule my appointment in time to get enough. This this one kind of typhoid vaccine that's better than this one, you know. So I'm imagining what that looks like for regular folk. Yeah. Um, yeah. It brings us back to this question about the U.S. healthcare system and people's attitudes to it, right? Like, how many times do they want to be showing up at the yeah. clinic? Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, let me go. Let me go in January. Oh, I have to show up in February, mid February. Like, ugh. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's we. It, it seems I don't know. It seems like the pandemic protocols like they need to continue for a long overlapping period. With- Absolutely. Like, there's no way. I mean, that that's I think that's why the the time horizon of twelve to eighteen months makes a lot of sense. Like, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. let's say it is available in December which is like in three days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's say that it is. Okay, that, those, that wave of folks, it's not going to be until, what, January, late January, until they actually have some immunity. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And, there, and also people have this idea, though, like vaccine, that means problem solved. And we already have the situation where people aren't taking it seriously. And we're going to be in the middle of like this, horrific wave that we're in which we haven't even seen the worst of and suddenly people are going to start feeling more confident that it's under control when it won't be yet exactly that that's always been the problem this this whole operation that's why operation warp speed actually seemed like 
seemed really ridiculous and actually still seems ridiculous. It was this focus on the magic bullet, the, the, the race for the magic bullet, when in fact, we really needed to focus on the stuff that we had, which was testing people, tracing people, isolating people, right. <laughs> educating people. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've done like, so well with all of those things. <laughs> I mean, those were things that absolutely could have happened in February and March, you know, like I, I remember going to a, like a, I think it was my like 10 year celebration dinner. And it was like all these new mutant. And I, and I was asked to give like a five minute pitch in my work and I go, huh, well, I work on outbreaks and everyone starts laughing because I was like, coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. It's February and I'm like, and I'm teaching a first year seminar about epidemics. And they were like, ha ha ha. And I was, and I kind of, yeah, at that moment, I was also trying to figure out if I was going to be able to go on a plane, you know, ever mm -hmm. again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I have a hard time thinking about imagining um, you know, I think even in, when I was talking about sports in April or May, I was saying mm -hmm. those we, we shouldn't have sports until the at least the end of the year. What are what yes, are we, you were well, saying that? That's exactly what you said. Yes. <laughs> what are we? Well, we we don't we have them. We just don't have. We aren't. There are no spectators anymore. <laughs> and we don't have safe sports. And let me say, we don't have. We may have sports, but we don't have safe sports. <laughs> right. So you were actually absolutely correct. We've just chosen a different method. <laughs> right. 12, 12, 12 weeks of football. <laughs> That's it. we got to talk. Let's talk about football right now because I know we, we yeah. like this is my fault. I blame myself for not getting to sport <laughs> sooner. It's always my fault. But uh, we're sorry, listeners. I, I always want to talk about the other stuff too. But so you focused on disease exceptionalism, right? And I think that's actually really interesting in the context of football. This idea. So to step back for a second, disease exceptionalism, or the notion that by separating out diseases as objects of intervention rather than situating them within a larger context of health and social, economic, and political relations, we fail to meaningfully address the actual harm people may be experiencing, right? with this micro-targeting of a specific disease. Now, it strikes me that football is a great example of this, because during the pandemic, there has certainly been increased scrutiny of the ways in which players, especially college football players, the NFL is really exploding right now, have been exposed to the virus. I mean, now we've also argued that it's been really normalized. So I'm not, I don't even want to overstate the fact that people have been like concerned enough about this because they haven't. But there has been a different discourse than previously existed um, in that like people have been scrutinizing how safe people are in football. That's a conversation that's happening. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, there's been little to no accompanying concern whatsoever for the ongoing health crises in football, namely CTE and all the other forms of harm associated with head injury. Right? right? Not to mention other parts of the body, right? Every part of the body. Yeah. So like in this way, the illusion is produced that football itself, I would say, I mean, I'm making this argument, is actually safe as a safe and appropriate cultural form. The only problem is that pandemic football may have risks attached, right? And so like the, the exceptionalism is actually for me, like kind of horrifying in that sense. Cause it's gonna be like, yeah. when we get past COVID, it's like, oh, thank God we can have football again. All is well in America. Can I have our sanctity of safety in this sport again. <laughs> we have a bubble. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, the bubble. Um, yeah, gosh. I, 
you know, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, where to even begin? I think, I think that's why I was really annoyed by the Vanderbilt thing. Um, okay, yeah, talk, talk to us about the Vanderbilt thing. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> oh, I, ha- I have to do it, and I don't. I feel like, but I feel like I'm I'm giving short shrift to the other piece of the story because, because yeah, you're right. Football is harmful. I'm still trying to figure out like how, how the safety only applies to the pandemic. I mean, and the pandemic, but also, I mean, so it's, it's, so yeah, CTE and, and traumatic brain injury and broken bones and all of the stuff that happens with, with football. But I'm even thinking about like, what it means to have a COVID infection for these young people, um, some of many of whom will actually be experiencing other kinds of pathology as a result of physiopathology, um, pathophysiology. I'm using words, making up words, um, <laughs> as a result of an infection with COVID, right? So myocarditis, myocard- very, very, and it's common amongst athletes anyway. Um, yeah, apparently like that's the problem with my heart is <laughs> I had all these irregular beats and then suddenly it's better, but now I have this, uh, like inflamed part of my heart that's from exercising too much. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So yes. Um, I'm, I'm just, I know no, because we have this myth that sport is healthy. I, I'm sorry. I just want to follow <laughs> up with that. Right. This idea, like actually what we're doing is we're punishing our bodies in the context of elite <laughs> sport. Right. It's not, that's yet another one of these myths that are circulating. I know, but I, I don't want any cardiologist to get mad at me, but you know, they're like, Oh, you're fine. It's just your left atrium is a little bit bigger than it was last year. Oh, <laughs> it's just the main oh organ of your body. <laughs> just, Wow. And since you have been working out a little bit more, and I'm like, yeah, it's called being at home all the time. Um, yeah. And also stress. So, um, but no, to get back to this this question, it's been, you know, there are all of these other effects that sort of play out and all because somebody wants to be entertained. Again, I grew up in South Carolina where, you know, I was, th- I was trying to think about my first, um, and my parents love sports and, and they love football. Like it's, it's so bad that if my mom visits me or my dad, my mom and dad visit me or I'm, I'm visiting them. They're like, they just like surf looking for surf television. They channel surf looking for a football game. Like my mom will actually be like, Oh, I'm just going to see if there's a game on. Like, it doesn't matter who's playing. <laughs> it doesn't matter if she likes the team or not. And so that's what I grew up with. Like my, my brother, who's a bit older than I was, you know, by the time he was 11 or 12, the expectation was that he was supposed to put on some pads and a helmet and go out. Um, and he did. And he came home and he was like, I hated that. It hurt. I'm never doing that again. And he switched to basketball. But um, there was, um, you know, and so um, it, it, does shock me that this that that the cost the cost is so great and people are actually quite relieved and quite excited about this you know even what's the kid from clemson who i i trevor trevor lawrence uh trevor lawrence the quarterback at clemson yeah i i i i try to pretend i again i grew up um in south carolina and um i i have to pretend like i don't know his name so there's (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he's like, we're, oh man, it's too bad that the, the guys uh, don't, we have this case of COVID because I was ready to play. When he tweeted that, I was, I wanted to smack him in his head. And like, anyway, all of this to say Vanderbilt. <laughs> Obviously Vanderbilt was recently celebrating its first woman player. Is that what happened? She was the first woman. Yeah, the first in the F. In fact, not just at Vanderbilt, but in the in the uh, Power Five conferences. So that's why people were really getting excited about it. Uh, right. The Power Five thing, yeah. That it was the Power Five thing. That's what made them very excited. I, I thought so. I was like, "There's some qualifier in there that makes it really important." Um, <laughs> exactly. That's right. And so, so what what struck me about that was that she. You know, I, I obviously I was like, who is this girl? You know, and I am calling them girls, and I'm calling the the boys boys because they're still probably on somebody's health insurance, right? Um, that would be their parents, and you know, and and their students. And so one of the things that um, I, I noticed was that she was a white woman who plays soccer usually, and I was thinking, oh, that's really fascinating. That this the glass ceiling looks the glass ceiling was broken by a person who basically plays um okay so the, the the thought process that i had was who gets to play power five what woman gets gets to be the person to break the ceiling glass ceiling mm -hmm. um, we already talk about the sort of racial politics of football which is that there's a hierarchy <laughs> and that that hierarchy looks a lot like um, racial hierarchies in the United States, right? So um, QB for a long time was always seen as the white, the white player because that's where all of the decisions get made, right? That's where mm -hmm. all the sort of thinking work that happens. And then there are all of these other people who are simply moving around on the field as the pawns of the 10 or 15 people who coach from a booth <laughs> and have a book. Um, and so there's there's this whole puppet master, racial puppet master setup that happens. Um, and the fans are this strange base. But anyway, so I was trying to think about like, what, what would this person look like? And, and what position would they, what, where do they come from? So I guess the, the situation is, is she got to play because there were too many COVID positive people? Is that what it was? Like, yes. Yeah. No. I mean, like, just as for context, if people are not paying attention, and you wouldn't get this context, by the way, from the mainstream media coverage. Uh, yeah, Vanderbilt has been absolutely stricken by um, by COVID cases, and their numbers throughout the season have been like they've been always kind of on the cusp. Can they play? Can they not? In terms of whether they have enough scholarship athletes who are healthy enough to play. Uh, although, of course, there's always the qualifier. Well, some of them are out just out because of contact trace. That pesky contact tracing is always getting in the way um, of our college football. But yeah, that's that's the situation. Vanderbilt has struggled with putting healthy people on the field. And so they ran out of players at the position that were on the team that could play. Um, a similar problem, by the way, that the Denver Broncos have just been facing with their quarterback position. Um, not, not to go down that road. I didn't see that, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, but you're, right, you're absolutely right. That's the reason. So they, re they had to reach out to someone who was not actually on the team. Right. So a person who would definitely not be a contact of all of those kids who were possibly sick. Yeah, so, so think about that for a second. We need an athlete who certainly would not have been fraternizing with 
anyway, I'll move on. I'll move away from what that might mean. So we, they, they have this, this roster, they find athletes. Um, obviously, if you're looking for a kicker, you always go to soccer, right? That's, that's sort of like, that's, that's the cliche. Um, and if you're going to go to women's game, it's going to definitely be a women's soccer player. Okay. So I then started to ask who, so it feels a very like wartime effort, right? It's sort of, it's a league of their own. It's like, oh, it's yeah. that kind of thing. It does. Right? It's, we can do it. You know, the women back and forth. They're all, they, they go for, they go for a woman, but they go for a soccer player. And U.S. soccer is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly elite. Um, I'm imagining that's similar at the collegiate level, right? Um, so one of the things that I, so that was sort of my comment. I was like, oh, this is very fascinating. It sort of is, it's like um, affirmative action is working for white women, just like it did, <laughs> just like it does in, in other areas of work. Um, so that was the first observation that I had. But the second one, so obviously there's a whole group of, of I think, um, uh, women sports writers who are like, well, obviously she's not the first. There have been women, girl, girls, actually girls at high school, girls and women who've been playing football forever. Um, and so they started to talk about all of these girls who are in high school who have played for their high school teams. And what I also learned, because I was, I was sort of curious, I think there was something like 40 girls uh, who were covered in this story. Um, and I, I was curious about where these girls come from and not just like what other sports they play, but what regions they live in and what their, I guess, racial backgrounds might be. Um, because I think that also was fascinating. And so when you look at the, the girls who were playing soccer, it's usually, oh, well, my high school soccer team and my club soccer team had conflicting schedules. So of course I'm gonna play club soccer, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, that's how you elevate in the game. And so they start, they try it out for the football team. <laughs> it's usually what it is. So that, that's, there's that group of girls. Then there's a group of girls who play other sports like softball basketball um, or track or whatever um, who have an affinity for the sport um, through in other ways right so they're running backs usually they're usually uh maybe they're safeties but they're usually receivers of some some kind um runners those are actually not the elite girls in terms of class um and there's a racial difference, if you can imagine. Um, and so I started to kind of, I guess part of that was sorting out the hierarchies that make it, that, that sort of make football possible for girls and women and how that fits into these other kinds of hierarchies. Again, which are shifting, but I think shifting pretty slowly, right? When you look at leadership, like who the coaches are, when you look at um, who, who's in certain positions. Um, when you look at which schools or which regions place people in certain positions, um, those are the kinds of things that I, I, I don't know, that kind of had me thinking and made me worry and wonder <laughs> about girls and women um, and the positions that they might be put into um, and how they get pulled into this sport. Um, 
so I, I yeah, I guess I, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing against and probably failing, <laughs> pushing against the rah-rah yay women in football situation because I think there is something to be said about what, how women and girls get into the position of playing football in the first place. And a lot of the, the rhetoric for them is we're just as good as the boys. We can take a hit like a boy can. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I'm sort of like, do you want to? Is that something you really want to be a part of? Uh, what kind of politics is that? Um, anyway. So, so speaking of all like the inadequacies and and all the issues that have happened in the sporting world over the past eight or nine months with COVID and Vanderbilt going through. This this latest outbreak, the Denver Broncos not being able to play with a quarterback um, because of COVID. I, I just a, a broad question: At any point over the past, say six to eight months, have you been shocked or surprised with the rush of return to play protocols across the sporting landscape? Like, is there a context where you've been like genuinely surprised by a particular decision to either play? or not play, or the ensuing protocols for return to play? <laughs> you know, I think I was more surprised earlier on. I think now I'm just sort of mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, capital gun a capital. Like, they just got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. Like, so when I first, I think when I first started talking about this, I was grading the grading the sports and grading the, you know, I was like, this these people get an A-. Because tennis was looking yeah tennis was looking pretty good at first i was like okay yeah or at least the usta was and i think it was because they had had another out you know i was talking about indian wells and um how wells had had like i think they had a neurovirus outbreak a few years ago (laughs) and they they had to stop it they were like you know what everyone having diarrhea is bad (laughs) yeah you know sadly um but i think they actually I think we started to see a kind of degrading, <laughs> degrading, uh, or at least a downgrading um, in terms of some of the things they did. So I think they did a pretty good job in terms of like maintaining bubbles or whatever, um, however well you can do that in New York. Um, and, yeah. You know, so, but I've heard, you know, but then there's all that stuff with Djokovic and <laughs> in the Balkans yeah. that was, sounded so insane that I was like what is going on like why so um so those kinds of things actually surprised me um I was or and impressed to me I would say is that the, the ability of the 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 care the care and attention that some organizations had versus others and again I think it's very different I think it depends on the kind of sport right if you're doing individual sports and they require fewer personnel to be able to manage them okay fine um but football like why (laughs) i i i i I still have a hard time with it um i i mean basketball i kind of get it and i think it worked better in the women's game than the men's um and i think that's for a reason i think i think it worked really well in women's soccer women's professional soccer better than it did another um i was really shocked back 
in was it june when they were trying to do baseball tournaments yeah for scouting (laughs) it was like what are you trying to like you really want to do this i mean these these people are actually like yeah on the field they're fine but every other time they're pretty much always together um Mm -hmm. yeah i called it a field it's a diamond oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and i know it's like I, I have watched so much baseball in my life and literally know nothing about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess the thing that always, that has long surprised me though, is the extent to which folks are so committed to keeping the engine running yeah. that they have really missed out on care. <laughs> Like the, the yeah. care. Like they have been working in service of capital so long. Like this idea that you cannot rest, that you must produce this, you must make this product that entertains people is is still surprising to me. And I get it, you know. I mean, are these people essential workers? Is that what it boils down to? Yeah. I I think if you if you ask the majority of fans, and I think this is where the fandom piece comes into this, is if you ask the majority of fans, they would one support uh, the claim that these are essential workers, and they would also support the claim that like we need sports to be quote unquote normal in this, as if there is ever going to be a sort of normal again but that sports play an integral role and that we are willing to sacrifice those bodies so that we as like the masses can deal with our own alienation, our own boredom brought about by the the capitalist division of labor. So like, I I guess you're you're talking to a bunch of Marxists or people who are um, aligned with that sort of um, discourse. So uh, I I think you you have a a great audience here for for that um, line of thinking. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And, and actually, to, to kind of p- to pivot off that a li- just a little, um, and uh, let's say I, we've kept you for a long time, so this is sort of the last question, but it's a, it's a bit of a weighty one, um, and I think mm. it kind of ties a lot of these strands together. So another issue you've raised elsewhere is what it would look like if we took the history of slavery in this country um, and the horizon of reparation into account when conceiving what public health policy might look like. And so I'm sort of, I'm, I'm kind of asking you to consider hazarding maybe a provisional answer to that question, but I'm going to provide more context for sort of how I'm thinking about it. Um, so it, it strikes me that this is sort of similarly relevant in, this, in the context of college football, because what we have is what amounts to a public health crisis, right, in college football, let's just say, if we, if we focus on that site, foisted upon a highly disproportionately racialized workforce um, and so, if we're talking, I mean, in college football, it's especially for uh, like the workforce being uh, young black men. If we're talking about the kind of political economy more broadly, in terms of how the workforce is distributed, we're talking especially about black and Latinx folks in the U.S. Um, performing the essential. And and I think this is important. Like, I'm not trying to say that they are like this work is essential. It is also degraded. It shouldn't be, but it is. So the essential and degraded services the society fundamentally relies upon, right? Um, and th- those folks are also bearing then the tragic health costs that result throughout this pandemic. 
Um, and, and what I'm trying to get is this is not really dissimilar to the way that black football players disproportionately carry the burden of supporting the entire political economy of college sport in this country at an exceptional cost to their own health and well-being, even when we're not in COVID times. Uh, although, of course, the condition are, is drastically worsened at this time by the virus. Now, none of these dynamics are a coincidence, right? But of course, follow directly from the white supremacist history of the country and the racial transfer of wealth that has followed from it. People do the work they do because of the opportunities proffered to them, whether that be service in a grocery store, hospital, or on a football field. So again, the question I'm trying to ask is, how could we build reparations into a conversation around public health that might begin to ameliorate some of these profoundly racist and clearly deeply unhealthy dynamics? Mm -hmm. That is really a weighty question. Um... And I, but I think health is one of those areas where that, I think that question is really, it could be addressed. Um, and I've, I've been trying to think about this. Um, hmm. Hmm. I think I'm stumped because I, I, uh, blah. I think it's because I've been thinking about this um, question of, of reparations for some time uh, and it's through health. So uh, the way I've been working with it is by talking to Ebola survivors, which seems like a kind of random sideways way into answering this question. But one of the things that I I think comes out of their struggle, which actually isn't a struggle, which doesn't at first look like a struggle. So it, at first, the, the, I'll back up a second. Um, the West African Ebola outbreak was actually, it was the largest one in, in history, largest outbreak since 1976, when the virus was discovered or recorded. And because there had been so I'd say relatively small number of survivors, there hadn't been a lot known about them. So we, we did know that people experienced stigma um, from having been ill. We knew that there were some longer term effects, but I think when you have this larger number of survivors, you discover that this is the case. And this, the thing that I, was struck by at first because of my, my the work in my first book was how this group of survivors got together and started this association. And then they started basically trying to look like your regular, degular, schmegular NGO, which is to say they had like, they built a kind of administrative infrastructure, organizational structure um, that was hierarchical, I think. And at first I was dismayed. <laughs> and then I realized that they were organizing basically to get money for people who had gone through this disease, get money for the people who, the families that had lost lots of members uh, to Ebola, but also to, to start to petition the government for a true policy that looked at health for all, um, which is to say, like, let's talk about the mismanagement of money that was given for Ebola, but also let's talk about the scientific research that was done and the blood samples that were taken out of the country and used to promote other people's careers. And let's also talk about um, 
let's also talk about the fact that many of the rural residents who survive this disease don't have basic care for their ophthalmological, neurological, whatever disorders that emerged as a result of having this infection. What would happen if we rethought questions of access? What if we rethought questions of uh, remuneration? What if we rethought um, what it means to support people um, in terms of their wages, in terms of their ability to house themselves, to feed themselves, and so on. And so what this did was it sort of, re it, uh, being in this position, <laughs> sadly, being in this position of, I guess, disability, chronic illness, um, of mourning, of grief, was also an opportunity to reimagine distributive politics, to reimagine the distribution of care. Um, and you know, I don't I don't want to idealize this movement, but I think it raises these questions in in real terms that allowed folks to really think about sovereignty and their relations to the sort of global political economy. Um, so you know, when I talk about people walking away with samples, thousands and thousands of samples and building their scientific careers on this or begging survivors to uh, collect semen from, from survivors, all these kinds of things, like really ridiculous extractive things. It also, I think, um, piqued interest in, um, I guess, reparative logics in ways that otherwise might not have happened. And so what I see here, at least from this, from COVID and, the, and this relationship to say um, college sports and particularly these ones that, that um, constitute a major burden like college football um, for black and brown people. And I, I don't wanna forget empire here, right? Cause Samoans, are actually a pretty large part of this as well. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> and, and I think they, they, they're overrepresented in football, right? American mm -hmm. football. Um, so I, I think injury, in, for some reason, injury somehow has this liberatory potential in terms of reparations. But I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure if it. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what that means. Um, but I, I see that that all of these forms of injury have that potential. Um, I'm not sure if it's the best starting point for talking reparations, but it seems to me to be one that um, articulates with the moment that we're in. Um, yeah, I think that's Yeah, no, that's 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 so fascinating. And like this this is something I'm always sitting with because you know my my work has a lot to do with um, you know, how injury fits into the political economy and, and what the implications of it are. And uh, I don't usually think of it in those terms, you know. I'm always thinking of it as harm and as the cost. Um, but it's fascinating to juxtapose it to like when you talk about it in the context of reparations and if I'm normally thinking about reparations in this historic, like deeply historical sense, right? Obviously in the US context, we were talking about um, reparations for slavery. Uh, 
and I can see how that be, that becomes so abstracted for people that it's difficult to have um, a not impossible, but it's obviously difficult to have a mainstream political conversation about that um, because because it seems abstract and it seems like generationally removed, and a lot of people don't want to take responsibility as a consequence of that. That's right. that being that being the barrier. Yeah. But then the injury, I, 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 what I, what this is sort of me trying to think along with you, like I- injury um, is so, it's so visceral. It's like, it's now. <laughs> These injured bodies right. are the bodies among us right in this moment. And so it's much more concrete to think about the fact that those bodies require compensation in some way, restitution right. for the harm that they've experienced. And like, yeah, no, it's like there's a there's a powerful confrontation there with the truth of the harm. Right. And I, I, I do think that one of the strategies that, that people deploy, right, is that they talk about this injury as um, having a I don't want to even call it hereditary, <laughs> but but having lingering effects, legacy, you know, it's chronic. Mm-hmm it sort of it, it moves it moves through the generations and and it, it morphs and and materializes in different ways but they all have a, a sort of common root there's an initial injury so that original sin but then there are are all of these these offshoots we have jim crow we have redlining we have you know we have the way football is organized we have the or- the way labor is organized in ways that that rhyme with or mirror um those previous arrangements um and and injury is absolutely i think central to all of those or at least they they constitute um critical moments or turning points um that they they materialize agents and effects in ways that I, I'm not sure um, slavery, which is an institution all, that encompasses so many things, may not very well do. Um, even though I think it's very obvious for people who think about it, right? <laughs> like once they think about it. Well, Adia, thank you so, so very much for just having this really wonderful and such an engaging conversation. Um, I, I speak for myself, but I'm sure that I speak for Nathan and Derek also that just the things that you really said and sort of walked us through are things that we are going to continue to be thinking of. And I know I'm definitely going to like re-listen to this episode, even though I, I listened to it by being part of it, but just because it's you bring up topics that are so needed for us to think about as we move forward, both in thinking about the future, but also, especially with respect to sort of this idea of like reparations with respect to sport and, and also American society, sort of how we can sort of address things that happened in the past to the extent that we can. Um, so thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Yeah.